well, let's go to Proverbs 14. And um, who wants to read Proverbs 14, 30, 33 to uh, 15, verse 4? Proverbs 14, 33, all the way until chapter 15, verse 4. Great. And then who wants to read that second section? Proverbs 15, 5 through 12. Proverbs 15, 5 through 12. Sweet. And who wants to read the last section? Proverbs 15, 13 through 19. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's get started. Proverbs 14, 33. Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. But in the heart of two, it is made known. Righteousness is from the nation. The sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him to act shamefully. 15. A gentleman ends, the gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. The mouth of fools follow folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A smoothing tongue is a tree of life, but the version in it crushes the spirit. An ignorant fool spurns his father's discipline, but he who keeps reproof is good enough. The house of the righteous has much treasure, but in the income of the wicked there is trouble. The lips of the wise is first knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the, of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. Grievous discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before Yahweh, how much more the hearts of the sons of men. Scoffer does not love one who proves him, he will not go to the wise. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. A discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fool feeds on folly. All the days of the oppressed are wretched. The cheerful heart has a continual feast, Better a little with the fear of the Lord than a great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but the patient man calms the quarrel. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns. The path of the upright is a highway. A wise son great, great, thank you. For tonight, we're going to examine and consider three parts of our, our beings, our persons. We're going to uh, examine our mouths, our tongues, our ears, and our hearts. And you know this as well as I do, that these three major uh, parts of our persons get us into so much trouble, don't they? Uh, our mouths, our words, are constantly getting us into trouble, aren't they? Our, our ears uh, are constantly listening to the wrong voices inside of us, outside of us, 
and our hearts is where it all begins. And so this is going to be a very holistic uh, lesson. And, um, you know, you know, starting from Proverbs, I think, after 11, chapter 11, um, or actually starting from chapter 10, you know, there's a big debate on whether are these kind of these, are they random verses kind of just put together or are they, is there a real flow? Is there a real connection that connects all these verses? And at first, when you read it, it seems like they're all random, but um, I've been kind of my main, my main, my main commentary for this, Bruce Waltke uh, insists on uh, that there's real continuity in all these verses. And I think uh, uh, being in this for about uh, five chapters from since chapter 10, I can really see the continuity in all these verses. And I hope um, you'll, you'll see it more clearly in these verses as well. There's a real um, real uh, flow to this, a real connectedness to this that uh, that you kind of need help. You really need a Bible study to help you see how all the verses uh, all the verses connect with each other. Um, in the first the first part of our our, our, our bodies, in a sense that we're gonna, uh, Solomon wants us to focus on is on our, is on our, on our in our mouths, our, our tongues, and, and we find that first section uh, where Solomon talks about the tongue and the mouth and our words. We find that first section in verse from uh, chapter fourteen, verse thirty-three to chapter fifteen, verse four, and uh, I call it the wise tongue, the wise tongue, chapter fourteen, thirty-three to. 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 4. And, and this section begins with a, just kind of a, a summary statement in verse 33. Um, Solomon, or, it says this to encourage us to pay attention, to, to listen. And he, and he wants to say that there's two, type of, two, 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 two categories of people in this world. There's two categories of people. And he wants you to be in, in one category and not the other. Um, there's the category in the first half of verse 33 where wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. And then there's the second category of person that he, he doesn't want us to be. He doesn't want us to fall into that category. And the, that category is in the second half of verse 33. But in the midst of fools, wisdom is merely made known. Um, he says that wisdom, verse 33... It rests in the heart of somebody who has understanding, and that that type of person is is somebody who can who can um, see through the situation. They can pro properly, uh, rightly diagnose the situation they're in, uh, and they see the most likely outcome of all the different dynamics that are going on in the situation. And because they they're able to see. Clearly, the situation they're in, they, they know the most likely outcome, they're able then to respond accordingly. And Solomon says to this kind of person, uh, a wisdom is like a, is like a weary traveler looking for a place to stay and, and finds rest. That wisdom is most at home in the heart of somebody who has understanding. A wisdom is looking, it's Let's imagine wisdom is like this person, and it's and, it, and he's walking through our hearts. He's walking from my heart to Andy's heart to John's heart, to Tina's heart to Sonny's heart to Jim's heart to uh, uh, 
Josephine's heart, the concept, and he's he's looking for a place to rest. Looking for a place to rest. He 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 looks at the home of your heart and he says, you know, I want to live there. I want to I want to I want to rest here. I want to buy that home. That's the home I want. Um, does wisdom, does truth, is it easy for the truth of God's word to settle in your heart? Is it easy to just kind of go into your heart and rest? When you read the Bible, when you listen to sermons, how easy is, is it for the word to go into your heart and find rest and comfort? Or is, or is wisdom trying to always uh, uh, knock on the door and, and, and call out and say, is anybody home? And look for the key. Uh, the doors are locked. Um, what's your heart? Does wisdom find an easy place to rest? Or is wisdom always being told, come back later. I'm busy. I'm tired. Nobody home. What kind of heart do you have? When wisdom tries to rest. Um, see, to fools, it says, wisdom is just made known. In the midst of fools, wisdom talks, and you just listen to it. And But you don't do anything with it. Wisdom talks outside the door. Wisdom has a conversation uh, outside, and you're inside the window. And you just go, oh, that's pretty nice. And you hear this talk, you just see this talking face. But you never, you never invite wisdom into the home of your heart. Like, what heart do you have? Does truth is truth easily accessible to your heart, or or do you fall asleep after like five minutes reading the Bible? I mean, do you zone out after like ten minutes of the sermon? I mean, what kind of person are you? So in every congregation, there are wisdom, there are fools, and those categories are determined by the receptivity of your heart. Are you a fool or are you a wise, are you a wise man or woman? Is your heart an open door to the truth of God's word or is your heart like a stone wall? Fools are stubborn. Fools hate knowledge. So wisdom goes in one ear and out the other. And so we go from wisdom to summary statement of verse 33. And then Wisdom moves up corporately. We go from wisdom for the individual in verse 33 to wisdom for the entire nation in verse 34. Well, wisdom and righteousness are kind of synonymous terms in Proverbs. The word wisdom and righteousness kind of go back and forth almost, almost seamlessly. And here in verse 34, this, this proverb reminds us what makes a great nation. What, what exalts a nation? And what do, what do we usually kind of, how, how, how do we usually <clears throat> measure the greatness of a nation by? Power, military power. Military power, okay. Financial prowess. Financial, right? Finan yeah, financial uh, wealth, right? Wealth, yes. And uh, technological opportunity. Opportunity, yeah. Right? Um, and, uh, and that's what we usually associate a, a righteous a nation or a, a successful nation uh, with. But Solomon says here that it's really righteousness that exalts a nation. Uh, it's, a, a nation depends on its ethical standards. 
its moral posture, not on its political, military, or economic greatness for its success. Uh, a righteous nation, when it comes to external affairs, um, uh, it keeps its treaties. It, it's, it, it keeps its word, right? The nation says something to another nation, and they keep their end of the bargain. Um, sinful nations, on the other hand, they lie. They, they break treaties. They bully a weaker nations. They engaged in, in dishonest propaganda. Um, I, I lived in Korea for many years in, when I was in high school. And uh, you can visit the DMZ, the, the demil, dem, uh, demilitarized zone, uh, the, the, the areas of, where it divides North and South Korea. And, and it's, pretty, it's a really cool visit. If you ever visit Korea, you should go. And, and uh, they're engaged in propaganda. Both, both sides are. Uh, you know, if you want to be a Korean soldier uh, stationed at the DMZ, uh, South Korean, you have to be six foot. You have to be six foot tall. And to give the appearance to the other side that everybody here, we're six foot tall. Um, you're not allowed to point because they, they take pictures. Because you, know, you, you see the, the, the soldier, I mean, it's like there's one area where there's a room and you can just run across if you want. And so they, they, they say, never point, never point. And I remember when I was in high school there, my teacher uh, looked at our class and said, guys, you see that guy over there? Do not point at him. Don't point at him. And we were all kind of laughing as he pointed at him. Um, but um, on the other side, the North Koreans, they have a fake village. There's a village. The entire village. And the propaganda is like, look how nice this village is. Nobody lives there. It's a ghost town. But they're engaged in this, this false propaganda that our country's wealthy. We're going to take care of you. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna. Our, our nation is better. Um, see, sinful nations lie. They they bully by force. At home, when it comes to domestic affairs, unrighteous nations uh, allow their judicial systems to break down so that criminals go free. Um, good citizens are uh, criminals are rewarded for their crimes. Good citizens are overtaxed, intimidated. Um, you know, now you have it where uh, some of these cities, the laws are breaking down and, and criminals run free. And when good citizens try to step in, guess who gets arrested? It's the good citizen to get arrested. Uh, and you can't even, um, you know, I lived in Korea for, you know, when I was younger. And it's not, it doesn't have the kind of order that America has. But what it does have is that, you know, Yes, you can get away with other, get away with stuff, but when the good guys fight back, the, the, they don't. The, the police don't mess with the good guys, and the bad guys know this. The bad guys know if I mess around, the town will beat me up and throw me out of the town. Uh, but here it's getting to a situation where the good guys can't even protect themselves. Um, so Solomon says here that in order for a nation to be a, a successful, you need God to bless the nation. And for God to bless the nation, you need to um, operate by his standards. When a nations are marked by sinfulness and unrighteousness, look what it says in the second half of verse 34. Sin is a disgrace to any, to, to any people. That 
a disgrace to the people, comes in the form of a society full of anger and hatred. Um, I, I, so, sometimes I go on these conservative sites and I watch these videos of these high school kids beating each other up, and it is just, it is sad. It is brutal. Um, the, 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 the disgrace to, to, comes to people when you lose your freedoms and your rights. A, a, a disgrace comes to the people of a nation when the people of your country start leaving, leaving their home nation to go to another nation, right? Um, that's when you know it's pretty bad, right? Because nobody wants to leave their home, right? People love their home. People love the where they were raised. But when you have people fleeing by the thousands, um, that's disgrace. That's truly disgrace. Uh, when, when you have different states, states flee to go to another state. What are the... What, what, is the, what is the governor of the state where all the people are going going to? What do they say? But it, look, everybody's coming to my state. There's exaltation. And what do they say about the other state? Look, everybody's leaving that state. There's disgrace. There's disgrace. It's so bad, you have to move. Um, and uh, Solomon continues with this, uh, this commentary on, on the success of nations by reminding, reminding us that a, a big part of a nation's success are its public servants. Um, verse 35, the king's favor is toward a servant who acts insightfully, but his, his fury is toward him who acts shamefully. See, the moral posture of a nation really depends on your officials, right? Um, on your... On, on your State leaders, on, on your your mayors, your senators, your judges, uh, though the officials of the government, they have to be in accord with with the king, assuming he's a, assuming he's righteous, in order for everything to go well. I mean, if you have a righteous king, but everybody who if, if everybody who works for him is unrighteous, uh, what good is a righteous king, right? And so this um. This proverb, verse 35, uh, is encouraging kings and leaders to make sure they choose uh, uh, great uh, partners, to choose good cabinet members, to, to wisely pursue loyalty, efficiency, competence in their administration. The proverb uh, encouraged kings and leaders not to tolerate mismanagement, and corruption. Um, and so the most important part of the king is really his inner circle, his advisors, right? Uh, remember, um, remember Absalom? Remember Absalom? And where did he go wrong? There he had two advisors, a really wise one, and one who was a spy for David. The spy for David was giving, purposely giving him wrong advice, and Absalom, he, he chose the bad advice, and that was his downfall, right? Uh, if you read The Team of Rivals, uh, it's a biography about Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, and um, part of his, uh, Abraham Lincoln's success was the people that he chose, and when Lincoln chose his cabinet, usually presidents would choose their best friends, their closest people. 
um, people who supported them. But Lincoln, everyone in his cabinet, they all thought he was a loser. They all hated him. But he chose, he chose them because they were the best man for the job. They were all the best man for the job. And at the beginning, all of the cabinet members tried to run over Lincoln, and they, he was uneducated. He didn't have a, a formal education. He was poor. They thought he was a, a, a nobody. And Lincoln was patient and kind. And over the years, he won them all over. He won all of their loyalty. Um, and a big part of his, of his success was his cabinet. So the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, it's based on that book, uh, Team of Rivals. It's a, really, it's a really, really good book. And so this proverb, uh, verse 35, also warns about, um, it warns officials of dishonesty and scandal. It uh, encourages them to be righteous and competent and service-oriented. You know, so there, there are parts of our government where there's no accountability, no accountability. Many of our school boards in this state, they can, they, they, can, they can do anything. They can make the biggest mistake and, and they're not held accountable. And, uh, and so they, they make dumb decisions. And so you need a form of accountability. You need uh, uh, leaders who have the power to uh, fire you and hire you. We move to verse one and, 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 and it continues to, uh, it instructs the official uh, when the king gets angry at you, when the king calls you into the court, when your boss calls you into his office, when the judge uh, 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 chides you for breaking a traffic law, what do you do? Solomon says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. All right? A calm answer turns away wrath. On the other hand, verse 1 also warns kings against using harsh and stinging words toward their, toward those under them. Leaders must avoid anger that tears down and destroys people. And what, what does it involve internally to give a gentle answer? What do you need internally to give a gentle answer to those who are, who are angry at you? What does that involve in the heart? That involves humility, sure. Absolutely. Gentleness. So, yeah, yeah. So, to give it, to be gentle, to act gentle towards others, what is it required in your heart to be gentle? Testament, when the when Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek," or "Blessed are the gentle," the the idea there is self control. Self control. To be gentle involves self control, especially when you're in an intense in a tense in a, in, a, in an intense situation. You need, you need to, to control. Uh, What's going on inside of you? Um, what happens when we lack gentleness in our speech? What happens? 
what happens. Yeah, well, verse 1. A harsh word stirs up anger. When you lack gentleness in your response, in your words, it stirs up anger. People get angry. Um, people aren't nice. And this word gentle in, in Proverbs, it's used 18 times. It, it has the idea of being tender, being delicate. The word answer here, a gentle answer, it has the idea of a response that in in the choice of your words and in how you use those words, um, a gentle answer has the power and the ability to comfort the listener, to soothe the listener. Um, have you ever met somebody like that, come across some, somebody like that, where you get angry, and you're upset, and the person responds with what? Gentleness, self-control. And say, hey, calm down, you know? You know, and, and what does it do to you? It, it diffuses the situation, right? It comforts you, doesn't it? It soothes you, right? Um, so a thoughtful, compassionate response to somebody who's angry at you without compromising the truth it restores good sense. It, it restores a, a temper. Uh, you know, I had, a, I had a boss, and he was—he had a bad temper, and he was always, uh, always very disrespectful to me. Always for about six months, he was just incredibly uh, mean and unkind. And uh, one day, I had a talk with him. I said, "Hey, I need to talk to you." And with gentleness, with kindness, I said, "Hey, you know, there are times when you talk to me and..." Just, it's just disrespectful. It's just very unkind. I feel very hurt the way you speak to me. And uh, guess how he reacted? He fired me. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't fire me. <laughs> he stopped. He stopped. He stopped. He immediately changed. Immediately changed. And I, <laughs> I thought I was going to get fired. I thought it might get worse, but I, I just had to say it. Um, soft speech is like oil on, on, on bruised skin. That softens and heals the skin. Sometimes they don't even know. Sometimes people don't even know that they're they're rude. And you just have to tell them, you know. And they go, really? Some people are just afraid to to say what's obvious. Uh, so soft speech is like oil on a bruised skin. Pain, painful speech has the opposite effect. It's like pouring oil on fire. Um, we continue with verse two, and we continue with the tongue and the mouth. The tongue of the of the the tongue of the wise makes knowledge looks good. The wise have mouths and tongues controlled by loving hearts and clear thinking. The wise, they speak in a way that makes their, their knowledge, their truth look attractive. The wise speak in a way that's kind and gentle with the purpose of saving their hear hearers, not condemning them, not destroying them. The content of their speech and the way they the way that they speak make them convincing. Um, on the other hand, the mouths of fools pour, pours forth folly. They're out of control. It's excited, emotionally gushing forth naked foolishness. You see, there's a, there's a point in a conversation where when the volume gets a little bit too high, when it crosses the, the threshold, when the words are a little bit too destructive and too unkind, 
it loses all purpose. It doesn't do anything anymore. There's nothing gained by speaking in that same way. All it does is destroy the situation. It destroys the person. And so a wise person is able to, yes, you're going to have heated arguments. Yes, you're going to have tough things to say. And the volume's going to go up a little bit. And maybe the word's a little bit sharper. But there's a point where when you cross the line, it ceases to be constructive. It ceases to be helpful. And a wise person needs to know when, okay, I've crossed the line, I just need to stop. Because this is this is not helpful, right? Couples need to just be able to, uh, married couples need to be able to, uh, both of the, the husband and the wife need to say, hey, hey, honey, we just have to stop. We just gotta stop. Because this is, this is, this is going nowhere, this doesn't help, let's just stop and, and talk about tomorrow, right? Let's talk about tomorrow. And, and the wise couples, one of you needs to be able to say that, and when they say that, the other couple needs to be have the good sense and, and, and be able to agree. I think you're right. I think you're right, right? Um, verse 3. You know, every word you Every word you say, the eyes of Yahweh see it. The eyes of Yahweh are in every place. You know, when you were in the car all by yourself, and you thought nobody heard you, and you muttered, you got a little, uh, about the person in front of you. God heard it. God heard it. The eyes of Yahweh are in every place watching the evil and the good. He probes and penetrates into every situation. He hears you every single time you talk to the person calling from the Philippines asking you to sign up for some special deal. And you're a little bit rude. He heard that. He heard that. You probably thought, oh, sh they're, they're, they're in the Philippines. I'll never see them again. But God saw it. Um, on the flip side, every... Every kind word, every every little small act of goodness that seems tr trivial, um, God sees that too. Yeah, He sees that too. I was uh, I yesterday. I was at I was, I was at Starbucks. I was at a store. I was tired. And I, I, was, I wasn't mean. I was hey, you know, thank you here. The guy behind me, he was so nice to the barista. And how you doing? Thank you. And he was just the kindest man. I mean, I thought, wow, that guy, that guy's, that guy's pretty awesome. You know? Well, God sees that. God catches that. Um, verse 3, the eyes of Yahweh are in every place, watching the evil and the good. And, and verse 4 sums up this section. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. But perversion in it breaks the spirit. Did you know your words... Your words can be like the Garden of Eden to somebody. Do you know your words can give a person peace and healing? Your, your tongue can be like spiritual medicine to anybody who's been hurt and damaged by, by evil tongues of evil people. Um, your tongue can bring healing, can be like a tree of life to somebody, or it can break the spirit. It can break the spirit. You don't know what's, what people are going through. You don't know what they've just been through. 
You don't know what they're contemplating. And it, it can be your words that can make a difference. It can be your words that um, give them hope. It can, your, can be your words that take away any hope they might have had. Um, watch your tongue. Watch your tongue. The second part of this, uh, of these Proverbs, Solomon says, now, now look at your ears. Watch your tongue and, and look at your ears. Verses 5 through 12. Point number two, the listening ear. And in 5 through 12, um, Solomon focuses on the consequences of accepting or rejecting godly instruction. Um, there are consequences depending on whether you receive and you listen to godly instruction or when you refuse to listen to it, when you reject it. And he starts by addressing the young. He, 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 he in verse 5, says, you should have, we, should all, we should have all studied this when we were younger, when we were kids. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but if you didn't, now, now, now it's still not too late. And it says, uh, verse 5, an ignorant fool spurns his father's discipline. But he who keeps reproof is prudent. This proverb encourages uh, young people like my boy Paul, six years old, to listen to the, the words of his parents. Um, to, to reject the, his parents' discipline when he, when he messes up, when he sins, when he disobeys, when he's disobedient. It's to be an ignorant fool, right? And this is, this is a, a point of encouragement. Solomon says, don't be an ignorant fool. Be prudent. Keep the reproof. What kind of um, person do you want to be? Do you want to be an ignorant fool or a pr prudent person? And he assumes everybody wants to be prudent, that everybody wants to be wise. And he says, and he immediately says, there is, there is great profit when you listen to wise counsel, when you listen to righteous people, when you listen to truth. Look at, look at, the, look at the, the profit of that. The house of the righteous has much treasure, but in the income of the wicked, there is trouble. Like, if you listen to your father, right, you, you, um, there's great treasure, right? The, John Henry, right, grew up, listened to his father, was a faithful son. Immediately, out of college, he was just, he was just cruising, right? Uh, on the other hand, like me, I was a wicked son. I never listened to my father. And uh, when I got to college, you know, I had, I had zero money, you know. I looked at my mom and I'm like, Mom, I need a little bit. I need a little bit. I'm going to go homeless. Um, there's, there's great benefit. There's great blessing when you listen to your father, when you listen to your mother. Um, even, even the worst parents, when you listen to them, guess what? You end up a lot better than when you did disobey them, right? Even the worst parents, um, for the most part, uh, know what they're talking about. And so, your parents need to be pretty bad in order to not listen to them. Um, even the worst parents, you, 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 there's, there's a lot more benefit and blessing when you listen than when you don't. Um, faithful sons and daughters usually grow up to be quite successful, right? Have you ever met a rebellious son or daughter who grew up to be successful? Have you ever met one? Very rare. Very rare. Um, and, when it, and usually when it happens... It's usually when there's a there's a significant life change in order to that reverse that 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 um, the poverty that they're, they're heading down. 
Um, I've had a lot. I, I knew a lot of rebellious sons growing up and rebellious people, and they're 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 not in a good place today. They're not. Um, it doesn't happen. In addition to having the possibility of having great wealth, um, the wise, their words, they're they're able to disperse knowledge. The righteous, now referred to as the wise, in verse seven. So you see how it goes back and forth, righteous, wise. They, just, they store up knowledge. They store up wisdom. They dispense it generously with their lips. But you need to have your spiritual house in order. You can't help other people when, when you're dealing with all these problems of your own. And uh, we, we move to verses uh, 8 and 9. And, and uh, we, we, we return to the, the topic of the righteous and the wicked. And... and Verses 8 and 9, they go together. Uh, verse 9 gives us the reason for verse 8. What does verse 8 say? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. Why is this, you know, so in the Old Testament, there were two ways to worship God. You could offer a sacrifice, or you could pray. And so Solomon is basically saying in verse 8 that um, the worship of the wicked is an abomination to God. And the reason why the worship of the wicked is an abomination to God is why? What, what is it, what's the reason why? What does verse 9 tell us the reason for that? Yeah. So, say it in a different way. Why is the worship of the wicked an abomination to Yahweh, according to verse 9? Why does God hate the worship of the wicked. Because it's more ritualistic than coming out of a place of love for God himself. Okay. But yeah. Worship is more like the outside. But so the here, he, here's the, the worship is referring to the actual sacrifice being presented. You're going to the temple, you're giving the animal to the priest. Why does God hate that act of worship in that moment? That's not righteous. According to verse 9. Yeah, because the way he lives, yeah. the way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Because he lives wickedly on a daily basis, he hates that worships that act of worship from the worshiper. If you're living in sin, Monday through Saturday, God hates your singing on Sunday. He hates your you coming to church on Sunday. He hates your worship. He doesn't want to hear your prayers when you're living in sin Monday through Saturday. Um, why do the why do the wicked offer a sacrifice then? If they're living wickedly throughout the week, why would they even offer a sacrifice? What's the motivation behind that? What's the motivation behind someone who doesn't live for God for the entire week and then comes to church on Sunday and then expects some type of blessing from God. Maybe, maybe to try and trick God or something? Yeah. They think they can trick God. They think they can manipulate God. Yeah. They, they see Sunday as some kind of ritual. Yeah. This ritual. Like he's a machine. You know, I put my coin in, and I turn the machine, and I, I, get, a, I get a little toy. Mm. Right? Um, they have a low view of God. Instead of confessing and repenting from their sins, they 
think God is some type of, they're engaged in this ritual magic. This, uh, he's some ki kind of Ouija board. Um, that the pastor is some type of tarot card reader. Um, and it's paganism. It's a paganism when you come with that kind of heart. On the other hand, look at verse 8. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Why is the prayer of the upright his delight? And what are the way of the upright? And how do they live? Righteously. Yeah, they pursue. They pursue righteousness because God loves the one who pursues righteousness. When he prays to Him, when he worships Him, it's his delight. Um, this idea of, of pursuing righteousness is you're pursuing righteousness at all costs. You're making every effort. You're making every you're making every sacrifice to pursue righteousness. That this pursuit of righteousness is even dangerous at times. That God loves that kind of person. Thank you. Um, verse ten. Verse ten. Verse ten. Uh, we we uh, we escalate. The, the 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 consequences escalate. And. He's warning the wicked. He's saying, listen, I've tried to tell you, um, these, are the these are the consequences for failing to listen to God. And what's the ultimate consequence? Verse 10. What's the ultimate consequence for failing to listen to, to, failing to, listen to spiritual instructions? Verse 10. Grievous discipline. Is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. And the, and here the death is it, it's eternal death. Uh, Solomon knows that everybody dies, so he's he's talking about a different kind of death. He's talking about an eternal death. A death when you die, your prayers in hell will be worthless. And he's talking about somebody who knew the way. But who forsook the way. They, they used to come to church. They used to say they believed in God. And then they forsook the way. They had an opportunity. But they hated, over time, they hated that reproof. They hated that instruction. And this is the, the tragic end of an apostate. And the certainty of that death, the justice of that eternal death, is grounded in the... The omniscient, omniscience of God in verse 11. Someone says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before Yahweh. Uh, this is where hell is. This is where the wicked go. It is a, and, it's, and it's implied that because God, he sees, because he's able to see all of hell, he's also the one who is able to send the wicked to hell. And so if God, if he's able to see the the darkness of hell, hell that is far away from heaven as possible, if he's able to see the darkness of hell, a place that you and I have never seen before, how much more is he able to see the hearts of the sons of men? That's the idea of verse 11. If he can see everything going on in hell, he certainly can see what's inside of your heart. And his judgment is going to be fair it's going to be absolutely right because he sees everything in your heart. He doesn't judge like we do. 
When we judge people, we I, I can only I can only see your actions. I can't see your motives. I can't see your thoughts. But God can though. He can. And so uh, on one hand, it warns us, it warns the wicked. And on the other hand, it comforts us. It says God's going to take care of everything. God's going to take care of the evil. And then finally, verse 12, uh, it ends this section on the, on, the, on the consequences of failing to listen to the, tr uh, to the truth in verse 12. In verse 5, he was, uh, he was called an ignorant fool. He was, in verse 5, he was called an ignorant fool. And now, in verse 12, he's called a, he's called a scoffer. Somebody who mocks God, who looks God in the face and, 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 and makes fun of him. And, and it describes the, the scoffer. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Because he's so prideful, because she's so prideful, she will not seek counsel. He hates being reproved. He hates correction. And so... He chooses not to associate with the wise because he's so in love with himself. She's so in love with himself. Uh, and the mocker loves flattery, loves uh, attention, instead of loving God's truth and God's righteousness. And so we move from, um, we go from Solomon saying, watch your, watch your mouth, to Solomon saying, watch your ears. And now in verse uh in the, in the last part of this section, God says, watch your heart. Look at your heart. Um, verses 13 through 19. And in these, uh, these last verses, uh, Solomon shows how the heart can overcome every circumstance. That if the heart is right, it can, over, it can overcome every difficult circumstance. And verse 13 he, he gives a, just a summary statement about the importance of the heart in verse 13. That a heart, it affects every part of your being, right? A glad heart makes a face look good. You know, I'm not a very attractive person. No matter how ugly I am, even when I'm joyful, it makes me a little better looking. And that's the idea, you know? When I... You can be the ugliest person in the world. But when you're joyful, people are attracted to you. People are attracted to you. It, can, it, it affects every part of your being. Your face, your eyes. It sparkles in your eyes. Um, it affects your emotions. It affects your physical health. Um, and Solomon is talking about spiritual joy. He's not talking about... Um, a joy that every unbeliever can experience. He's talking about the kind of joy that only a, a, a Christian can experience. How would you define joy? How would I define joy? I, I, I ran across this, uh, this quote by John Piper. He defines joy this way. I think it's a good definition of joy. Um, joy is a good feeling in the soul. You hear that? Joy is a good feeling. That word feeling. It is a good feeling in the soul. Produced by the Holy Spirit, not produced by uh, the circumstances in your life that you got to raise, that you bought a new house. Um, that's not the kind of joy we're talking about. It's a good joy is a good feeling in the soul, 
produced by the Holy Spirit, as he makes us see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ in the word and in the world. That's the joy Solomon is talking about. This joy changes everything. But when the heart is pained, when the heart, heart doesn't have that joy, the spirit is broken. And, and by implication, the body is broken. The troubled body, a troubled heart, troubled psyche equals a troubled body. Um, where does the heart, where does the heart of the righteous, where, where, where do you find joy? Where do you find joy? Verse 14. The heart of the one who has understanding seeks knowledge, and the knowledge is assumed to be the knowledge of God's word. That's where you find joy. The heart of the one who understands God's way finds their joy in the knowledge and application of the truth of Scripture. They're constantly seeking the wisdom found in God's word. The word is their lifeline. The depressed fool, on the other hand, it feeds on folly. It never seeks after knowledge. It's constantly drawn toward its own, his own foolishness, spouting out his own foolish opinions. And then in verse 15, um, we look at the outcome of this kind of person. This heart filled with joy, a joy, this good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he makes us see and savor the glory of Christ in the word and in the world. This kind of heart is an overcomer. She's an overcomer. And in verse 15, it says, it's, it's, it's talking about the righteous and the wise person in this first part of verse 15. All the days of the afflicted are evil. There's, there, every day we're afflicted with evil, aren't we? There isn't a day when we don't feel and experience the effects of a fallen world. Every day something goes wrong. Everything, every day something doesn't work out. But a good heart has a continual feast. What is he talking about? A spiritual feast. A, a feast of the heart, an inward feast. A banquet of the heart, a banquet of the soul. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how uh, incessant it is, look what it says, all the days of the afflicted are evil. Every day you experience evil, but... A good heart has a continual feast. No matter the poverty of your circumstances, you can have a joyful heart. A feeling, a good feeling in the heart produced by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 16, we get some examples of that. Uh, he says, Better is a little with the fear of Yahweh than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a little, if you have a little bit of love for Yahweh, you have a little bit of fear of him, that is so much better than, that, that and having a little is so much better than just having great treasure without Yahweh. Um, without Yahweh... Even if you have great tre treasure, there's 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 turmoil that turmoil that comes with it. And so the idea is to pursue Christ more than you do earthly treasure. If you don't have Christ and you have earthly treasure instead, that earthly treasure will always be accompanied by turmoil. I mean, I you you you've run across many very successful people 
uh, many successful. Uh, I had a, I had a, I worked for a, a small company and the CEO. I mean, he had it all. He, he drove around in this nice, fancy Mercedes G wagon and and uh, uh, lots of money and a, a nice car and uh, very, you know, a good-looking guy. And he was miserable. He was just miserable every day. He was just uh, constantly just pouring out wrath on people. I mean, our, our turnaround in our company was like people would stay for three months because he was just so angry, so term, so full of, of of inward chaos. And so. Verse 17, again, better is, a dish, better is a dish of vegetables where there is love than a, fax, a fattened ox and hatred in it. You have two kinds of meals. What kind of meal do you want? Do you want a dish of vegetables where there's love? Or would you rather have a fattened ox and hatred? Right? What do you want? Do you want to you want a bowl of rice and a glass of water in a marriage full of love? Or do you want to go to a five-star dim sum in New York City when your relationship is full of hatred? What, what, what kind of lifestyle do you want? Married couples, don't ever fight over money. Don't ever fight over money or a house. It's not worth it. It's better, it's better to live in a cardboard box with somebody you love than to live in a mansion filled with hatred, right? Be wise. Be wise about this. And then finally, it, it talks about two kinds of over, overcomers. Two kinds of overcomers where their heart is able to overcome a hard situation. In verse 8, um, there's the one who's loving, who's slow to anger, who's able to quiet a dispute, He's able to overcome a tough situation. On the other hand, the, the hot-headed person stirs up strife. And usually what happens when, uh, what happens, what, what marks the hot-tempered person? What happens when you lose your, when you lose your cool and you get angry? What happens is your heart is unable to overcome the situation around you, Right? You're unable to overcome these things that aren't, aren't working in your favor, and because you can't overcome it, you blow up, right? All, all these things that you can't control, they're not going your way, and you're just, uh, and because your heart is not able to overcome the situation, you get angry. And the, the circumstances of the situation control you. The loving, patient person because her or his heart can rule over chaotic situations, they can overcome that. They can overcome that difficulty. Right? Daily, you're bombarded by situations you, you seemingly can't handle, and the, the heart of the overcomer can take it. They can take it. They don't even try to control the situation. There's a second type of overcomer, and, 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 and the second type of one who doesn't overcome the situation, and that's the verse 19, the, the sluggard, the lazy person, 
and the diligent man or woman. Look what he says in now. The way of the sluggard, he says in verse 19, is as a hedge of thorns. Hedge of thorns is if you were a farmer and you wanted to protect your vineyards from animals, you would plant bushes that had thorns around it. It's kind of an ancient way of putting barbed wire around your around your farm. You didn't have barbed wire, so you would get bushes with lots of thorns and, and want to keep out the wild animals. And um, and so the idea here is that the lazy man or woman, um, uh, they, they have their goals. They want to achieve their goals. They want to overcome these uh, obstacles. But because they're lazy, um, when, they, when they finally see a circumstance they can take advantage of, that they can take advantage of, everything is so difficult. Everything is too painful. Everything is too dangerous to be able to, so that, they, so that it gets in the way of expending their efforts, right? This is the, this is the lazy person. They, all, they have an excuse not to do anything. There's a line in the streets. This, this could happen to me. That could happen to me. I could lose this. I could lose everything. You know, I could get hurt. I'll be uncomfortable. See, everything is a hedge of thorns. Everything is a hedge of thorns. The smallest obstacle is a hedge of thorns. You know, I, I had a friend um, who I, I worked in. You know, I did ministry at the Drug and Rehab Center, and so I had a friend who, who uh, he, he, he basically grew up, he spent 20 or 30 years in jail. He got out of jail when he's 50. You know, in jail, they don't teach you much. You just, you just stay in a cell. So it kind of fosters incredible laziness, right? And he got out, and he couldn't leave his room. I mean, everything was dangerous. Everything was a challenge. Uh, I would have to, if I didn't take a drive, if I didn't pick him up from his house, take him to church, he wasn't able to go to church. I mean, I, I had to do everything for him. Because everything was a hedge of thorns. Everything hurt. Everything hurt. Look at, the, look at the overcomer. But the path of the upright is a highway. It's a highway. You know what a highway is like? You know how wide a highway is? Now, he's not saying that it's easy for him. He's not saying it's easy for him. But the overcomer is able to overcome every obstacle that comes his way, every hedge of thorn. It's like a highway. It's like a highway. It's hard to get, it's hard to, obtain the object of pursuit, it's difficult, but because he's able to overcome every situation with his wisdom and righteousness, it's like a highway when he gets there. And so, um, there you have it. This comprehensive lesson on your eyes, watch your eyes, watch your ears, and watch your heart. There you have it. Uh, a recipe for total success in life, right? There you have it. Any questions? And you see how it just kind of all kind of fit together, right? It all flowed together. All these verses that at first kind of seem random, there's a flow, right? There's an order. There's a, there's clear sections in these, right? In these verses.